Hi, welcome to On Course, the podcast from Equine Green. I'm Eric Dawson. I'm joined now by Priti Christel, co-founder and co-executive director of IMAC, an organization that works to widen access to affordable medications around the world by challenging drug patent systems. So far, they've increased access to 20 therapies for eight diseases in 49 countries. I'm so pleased that Priti could join us to talk about her journey. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's good to see you. Uh, A fun fact, I was actually on Priti's panel when she was applying to be an Equine Green finalist, so I, a fellow, so I feel like we've been on this journey together for for quite some time. Um, And your journey is a really interesting one. You know, the the origins of IMAC are actually really personal, uh, not just technical or legal. Um, Tell us about that. So in the early 2000s, I was in law school in New York City, and I got a call that my dad was really sick, and a lot changed in my life in that moment. Uh, I decided to move home, support my family, and I was really worried that my dad wasn't going to make it, and he ended up getting a therapy that cured him of the mysterious illness that he had, but I think it was a real turning point for me to realize what can happen to a family if they don't get access to the right medication. So I decided to move to India and work in a legal aid clinic that was serving people living below the poverty line who weren't able to access their medicines. And so tell us about the path you were on and and, and the path that was created from that choice. So... I was actually, after my dad got sick, I actually ended up going to a law firm because I felt very acutely the loss of our head of household in an economic sense. Uh, As an immigrant family, you know, we were really reliant on my dad, and I felt like I had to step up and fill, um, fill in for him. And so once he was cured, there was this real turning point for me where I had a choice to make. Do I stay at the firm and continue to support my family, or do I go out there and do what I was feeling really called to do, which is to understand what are families around the world going through when they're faced with this moment where their loved one gets sick? And I decided to uh, move to India. I decided to work with families who uh, were going through the same struggle that we were going through but were unable to access the medicines that they needed. And, and how did your, your community, your, your family, your classmates from law school, your mm-hmm. friends respond to that choice? You know, I've always been a bit of the outlier or black sheep in my community. So I can't say that anyone was truly surprised, but I think a lot of people had a lot of doubt about where this path would lead. And certainly my family wished that I would stay in a more lucrative career, given that I had just finished my education and uh, was on the path to, you know, upward economic mobility, which was always a, a value that had, you know, been nurtured in us. But they also knew that from the time I was little, you know, I always cared about social justice. I was always calling things out. And so I don't think anyone was surprised when I headed to India. What were you like as a kid if we had met you in fifth grade? <laughs> what, what was young Preeti like? 
You know, when I got married, my Aunt Peggy came up to me on the dance floor, and I don't know why she brought this up, but she said, you know, I remember when I first met you. This is an adopted auntie of mine. She said, I remember meeting you at eight years old. Uh, she was a teacher at my school, and she taught choir, and she said she was teaching us all these songs as third or fourth graders, and I came up to her and said, Mrs. Peggy, you know that there is such a thing as separation of church and state, so I think some of your song choices are inappropriate. She's like, that's when I knew you were special. <laughs> so clearly this commitment to justice, this curiosity started at, at a very young age. Take us to, to, the, to the point in India and the birth of IMAC. So when I moved to India, when I was working at the legal aid clinic, we were representing all kinds of folks who lived below the poverty line. Uh, and whether it was widows who had lost their husbands to HIV and needed support on legal matters, or whether we were fighting for the rights of prisoners in court to access treatment, or whether we were supporting the trans community when they were getting harassed by the police. With every community that we were representing, legally in court, I started to see this common thread that nobody was getting access to the medicines that they needed. And so while I cared deeply about social justice and human rights and the whole picture of their lives, I started to see that if these communities did not get access to their medicines, many of them were not surviving. Many of our clients were not surviving long enough to even fight for their rights. You know, so it's kind of the step before the step that needed to be taken. And we spent a lot of time working at the community organizing level, trying to educate people about their rights. And in that moment, we started to see that the thing that was standing in the way of people getting their medicines was this very basic idea of drug companies having monopolies that they were abusing. And people weren't getting medicines that existed. So I teamed up with my co-founder, who was a patent lawyer, an intellectual property solicitor from the UK. And we decided that we wanted to tackle that problem at its root to make sure drug companies weren't holding medicines out of reach for people. And so we set up IMAC basically to bring private sector firepower to the fight for communities, to continue to work with the organizations we had already been working with but to bring scientists on board and people with business and market background on board and a whole new team of attorneys who would be willing to take cases forward to make sure that uh, bad patents, basically, would not stand in the way of competition in the market and prices coming down and ultimately families getting the medicines that they needed. So you see this foundational issue of access, yes. And rather than than than, than pruning at the top, uh, go go for the roots. And, and what was the reaction uh, to that work from drug companies, from potential partners? To, what kind of feedback did you get when you started? I think very similar to when I moved to India. You asked about the reaction from my community. I think there was a lot of skepticism and a lot of doubt about whether a few people who had an idea could actually grow an organization. Um, definitely not a lot of support. And so there was very much, you know, uh, Tupac 
moment of it's us against the world. And if we really believe in this, we have to keep going. And in those first two years, we filed multiple cases on HIV drugs on behalf of communities. And what was amazing is that we won every single one. And so we were able to show that this could work, that a small group of people on their laptops could take on big pharma and win in a very low-income setting. And uh, I think that this is probably something that's common to a lot of people with an idea uh, who see a problem in their community, who want to solve it, who don't get the support and resources they need, and really just have the tenacity and the drive to say, you know, I know this can work. I'm going to make it work. It sounds like you had some um, amazing early success uh, around finding patents. Tell me about some of the early failures, the the, the places where uh, maybe things didn't happen as you expected or things didn't go your way. In the first couple of years, a lot of the cases we were filing were in India. But we started to recognize that this problem was affecting a lot of low- and middle-income countries. So we had this idea that maybe we could file cases in Europe at the European Patent Office. The way patents work is they're national rights, so you have to fight the case in every country. But we didn't think as a small team we could be in every country. So we figured if we could challenge these patents in Europe, if we won, that decision would serve as precedent and then influence all the other patent offices around the world. So we filed these cases on against a company called Abbott Laboratories on an HIV drug called Caletra, and we didn't win. And so it was an early lesson to us that the high-income countries, the places where the you know home to the companies, weren't going to be as easy as the places where countries had a vested interest in bringing down drug prices and treating their citizens. That's Priti Krishtel, co-founder and co-executive director of IMAC, an organization that works to widen access to affordable medications around the world by challenging drug patent systems. I'm Eric Dawson, the host of On Course, the podcast from Equine Green. And we'll be back after a short break. On Course is produced by Echoing Green. For more than 30 years, Echoing Green has been on the front lines of solving the world's biggest problems. We find emerging leaders with the best ideas for social innovation as early as possible and set them on a path to lifelong impact. Our community of almost 1,000 social innovators includes past fellows like First Lady Michelle Obama, major public figures like Van Jones, and the founders of organizations like Teach for America and One Acre Fund. Built and refined over 30 years, our process discovers tomorrow's leaders today. Join us as we support a new generation of social impact leaders. Learn more at echoinggreen.org. I'm Eric Dawson, and you're listening to On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. I'm speaking to Priti Krishtel, co-founder and co-executive director of IMAC. Social entrepreneurs often talk about themselves as having two jobs. One is to build a mission, so understanding where you're going, the the vision, the clarity, uh, the chutzpah to try something new, and then also building an organization, staffing patterns, hiring people, firing people, uh, organizational design. What was that journey like, the journey of building an organization? 
I think it's a great question because I don't think people, most people see this side of building a mission-driven organization. We were very lucky to be in a partnership model. So when there's two of you, uh, for example, in our case, my co-founder was relentless in driving the programmatic vision. You know, he was a patent lawyer. You know, he had all the technical knowledge we needed to drive law reform forward, to head the litigation. And while as a lawyer, I certainly worked on those things, it freed me up to do something that I do best, which is to create systems and bring people in and mobilize more people, whether it's your staff or your board or building a base of champions and donors. Uh, It freed me up to really spend time on that. And I think that it is very, very, not just time-consuming work. It's creative. It can be a lot of energy and a lot of time. Uh, And what I've heard from most socialpreneurs definitely echoes my own journey, which is that that is some of the most fruitful work also. And if you could go back and find, I don't know, 12 years ago, Preeti, what would you tell her that you know now? This is a tough question for me. You know, I've always just lived by this motto that you have to create the world you want to live in. And so I did that. And so I've taken big risks. I think risks that, like I said, people in my community wouldn't have felt comfortable taking. And I failed along the way. And I burned out along the way. And I view all of that as part of my journey. So I don't know that I have retrospective advice to give myself. I think what I would still say to myself now is to keep going, keep creating the world you want to live in. I often think about authorization, um, the, the ability to, to believe that you can do something. And, and that's a huge inhibitor, I think, for many people to get started on these journeys, um, particularly if, if you're not part of a dominant culture that you see doing that work. Mm-hmm. And so where did that authorization come from, um, whether that, that's internal or external? What made you think that, that you could do this? I think this is one of those things that's just really individual. I've come to learn, in part being part of the Echoing Green community over time, that there are just some of us who have that knowing inherently. And I'm one of those people. I just knew that it was possible. And even if it wasn't possible, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't try. And what's been really beautiful to learn over the last decade and a half is that While other people may not have that intrinsic knowing, uh, we are able to spread the gospel. We are able to actually encourage other people who have just enough doubt or just enough fear of the risk that it's worth taking the leap. And I think that's really actually a beautiful part of being part of this group, if I can call it that. Uh, with the inherent knowing that we actually can bring more people along to live with purpose to take those risks. Our lives, uh, like days, move through periods of lightness and darkness, and and both are crucial, right? Those bright moments where where things are moving quickly, uh, where we're energized, uh, and those dark moments that are harder, uh, we're experiencing uh, confusion, loss, frustration. And we tend to tell the light stories because there are often the stories we most want to tell about ourselves. 
I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey in the dark spaces, um, partly because it's they're important stories to tell, and we don't get one without the other. So you mentioned burnout earlier. Um, what have been some of your movements through through darkness, and, and what have those times been like, and, and what has sustained you as you move through them? This is a very timely question for me right now because it's only now, after over 15 years of doing my work, that I'm actually realizing what my dark chapters have been about. Just recently, and this is really in the last three months, I've learned about myself that when I enter into situations, where I go is a feeling of not belonging and therefore a feeling of shame. And it's really surprising, you know, at 41 to learn new things about yourself that you didn't know. It's a very new realization for me. And so I'm able now in the last three months to watch myself as I enter a room, let's say, of all very successful um, philanthropists who are all white women. And I see now what happens to myself when I walk into that room. I tell myself, as soon as I walk in, I don't belong here. And then I do not interact in the authentic and engaged way that I always interact with people. And I cannot believe now looking back at all of the ups and downs I've had with the work over the years, I can see so clearly now. I told myself that story. And I'm showing up differently now. I walk into a room and I'm just excited to be there, excited to connect with whoever is in the room. And what comes back at me is that same energy. And so it's been a beautiful unfolding. And for me, it's a reminder that inner work, it does not stop. No matter what age we reach, how many years we've done the work, pausing and seeking out those mentors, spiritual guides uh, is so important for us because they can reveal things to us that we didn't know uh, about ourselves, and it opens up a door for even more growth. That's Priti Krishtal, co-founder and co-executive director of IMAC. I'm Eric Dawson, the host of On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. And we'll be back with more after a break. On Course is presented as part of the Inclusive Leadership Initiative, With support from the City Foundation, Echoing Green launched the Inclusive Leadership Initiative to expand its support of leaders that represent and work with communities of color. Together, Echoing Green and the City Foundation are supporting the next generation of leaders who are helping create economic and social opportunities for young women and men of color across the United States. Welcome back. I'm Eric Dawson, and this is On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. I'm speaking to Priti Krishtel, co-founder and co-executive director of IMAC. So you've been at this for 15 years. What is surprising you now about the work? Um, where has it gone? Where has it evolved from those early days in India with the early patent wins? Take us on that journey and, and, and where you are today. I would say the thing that surprises me about the work is how much is left to do. When we started IMAC, we said we want to put ourselves out of business in five years. I never expected that almost two decades later I would still be doing this work. You know, just a few years ago, we filed our first cases in China. 
We won those cases, and today the market is opening up for up to $50 billion in cost savings on one drug alone so that 10 million more people can get access to treatment. It's a good win. It's important. But I'm still shocked by the fact that we haven't gotten to a place with the pharmaceutical industry where we figured out why is the market failing us? Because I certainly think even on industry side, drugs are being invented. They want to make sure the drugs are reaching people. I don't think there's some giant conspiracy here, but we haven't solved for it in 15 years. And so now the problem is coming home to the U.S., to Europe, to the really high-income markets. One in four people aren't getting their medicines in these countries. And so there is political will. There is popular outrage. And I think we're in a great moment of opportunity where we are going to see big change happen in the next decade or two. And it's completely surprising to me that we haven't gotten here yet. And it's also, it's exciting because it's a very, very important turning point. And how is your work different doing work, say, here in the United States versus India? I think it's about what people value. In America, there are certain things that we hold sacrosanct football, religion, and patents. Patents are in the Constitution. There is a deep-seated belief that we need patents for innovation. If we're not the leader in innovation, then we're going to fall behind as a superpower. I cannot tell you uh, how deeply this cultural narrative is ingrained across the country, even in myself. And so the work here is different because it means unearthing that cultural narrative and seeing where actually it's failing us. It's holding us back from being what we can be in terms of leadership, in terms of scientific progress, and certainly in terms of basic health equity. So let me make sure I understand this. This is an interesting evolution from what was originally a real illegal strategy, Mm -hmm. how to use the the, the legal levers um, to create access. And now you're talking about culture change. Tell me about that and and what that looks like and and what you're thinking. Litigation has been important as we moved from India to the other emerging markets. It's even been an important tool as we tried it in Europe and the U.S. But I think here we're talking actually about changing a system, the system of how we grant patents, how we get medicines in the hands of people in countries like the United States is so complicated. In many ways, it's like big tobacco because the tobacco industry spent over a century building up a fortress of protection around itself, laws and policies that would allow the industry to grow and grow and grow. This is exactly what the pharmaceutical industry has done over a century. And we're seeing now a desire for change from people, but things like law reform are not going to happen overnight. There are narratives that I'm talking about that need to change first. You know, the industry has done a very good job of convincing us that if we were to deny them any amount of profit, any amount of ownership protection, they would not be able to do research and development and bring the next blockbuster to market and cure our grandmother of cancer. And those narratives simply aren't true. And so before we can attempt what is going to be a Herculean task, to dismantle all of these laws and protections, 
we have to make sure that people not just want change, but have the information in their hands to understand how the system works before we can take on the task of dismantling the laws and protections. Amazing. So, so going back to our model of, of mission and organization, how's the organization changing to build behind that mission? And how are you shifting as a leader? It's a great question because after almost 20 years, I think I'm at a place where I no longer want to be on the front lines for the next 20 years. I can see very clearly that it's time to build up the next generation of movement leaders. So we are designing our organization around that. How can we start understanding who's passionate about this issue, who wants to take the issue on with these strategies and tactics in this time? And then what can we do to elevate their leadership, their uh, toolkit to do this work? I think we've also realized that healthy movements need healthy organizations and partnerships. And like many movements, the Access to Medicines movement suffers from so many things, resource scarcity, inability to convene across geographies and generations and uh, other difference. And so a lot of our work right now has first been in the last few years to do the inner work on ourselves to understand what are our barriers to being in partnership in community with this ecosystem? What are our barriers to bringing in new advocates and activists and voices? And to do that work first on ourselves. And then now we're embarking on a new chapter. How can we convene? How can we call people up uh, instead of calling them out? How can we start to strengthen you know, the integrity of the fabric between all of these different actors in the ecosystem. And we view this equally as important to the work that we're doing on the technical side. I see these three levels at which you're driving change. There's this ecosystem of movement, which is how do we all um, push together in our own way to change the world. You are building and supporting an organization uh, as a leader. Um, and then there's your own your own work uh, that's both both inner and outer as, as an individual leader. Where are you right now with that journey? I think for the first time, I am feeling an integration across these three levels as you describe them. I'm not sure I've ever had a desire or an understanding that keeping these three levels so separate um, has not really been what I wanted, and I didn't know that. In the last year, I've come to recognize, and this is partly, you know, turning 40, becoming a mother for the first time, really thinking about what integration looks like in life. And so the work to build a healthy movement is not different now from the work to be a mother and what does that look like for my child to grow up in the movement. Uh, it doesn't look different from my efforts, for example, to fundraise. I used to view fundraising as an activity completely separate from my real work. I used to view it as completely separate from my personal life because I viewed it as this thing that I had to do, you know, money in order to do the work. And that's also changed. You know, it's become 
again, part of the fabric of the three levels, which is that if we don't tell our stories, how will we get more people to join the movement? And if we don't have people joining the movement who are influencers and have resources and want to bet on this thing and really see it change, then we're doing the entire cause a disservice. And so it's been a really beautiful evolution, actually, that all of these things are now one rather than separate. So take us forward, say, 15 years from now. What's going on in the ecosystem? What's going on with IMAC? What's going on with you? What's, what's, what's your vision? Mm. Great question. 15 years. Okay, I'll start with the personal. I would like to be world schooling my son, which is my term for having my son very much grow up in a community like Echo and Green with friends and mentors and people to witness doing their work in different countries, uh, learning from the world rather than our just narrow, not just geography, but silo that we all keep ourselves in. Uh, I would like to have done what I'm saying here today, so it's good to put it out in the air, that I want to have built up the next generation of movement leaders, very much have taken a back seat by that time, and watch a new ethos permeate the access to medicines movement and across movements of what solidarity can look like and also what... uh, my chaplain once said to me this idea that love is about accountability. So what does it mean to hold systems and actors and institutions accountable, but offering them the opportunity and the hope that they can be part of the solution as we redesign markets that have truly failed us? And organizationally, I will have found a champion circle of people who believe in the long game, who understand that investing in movements and organizations with a long-term view and giving organizations the ability to really plan strategy and really plan for that long-term vision of systems change, we will have found that circle and we will be in close partnership with them. So I know that the organization is sustainable as I transition. One of the things we often hear from social entrepreneurs is how lonely the journey can be. How have you found your flock, and how do you sustain that network? This is really important because for many, many years, the road was very lonely for us. We found our flock first by being invited into fellowship programs of other social entrepreneurs. And I can't underscore enough how important that was for us to know that there were other people that were tackling these seemingly insurmountable problems with very little faith from their communities or ecosystems. And over the years now, I have that as a base, and I've looked to build out even farther, uh, you know, with other executive directors, with other women of color, and particularly taking risks to make myself vulnerable, to approach people who I may not have thought had the same problem to say, you know, I often feel lonely in this work and here's why, and then opening that door and inviting that conversation. And it's resulted in really beautiful friendships now. And I truly feel like finally in a place where I do have my flock. 
So we're going to enter the lightning round where I'm going to ask you questions and in a sentence you can respond. Okay. Where's your favorite place to be? Home. What's a favorite dance move? Ooh, dancing with my son. Ice cream or frozen yogurt? Ice cream, without a doubt. Where do you seek and find restoration? With my husband, with my community, and with my chaplain. What's a hidden talent that you're particularly proud of? Making up songs and singing them really off-key. And if you could wish one thing to the listeners, to those who are inspired and curious about your path, what would that wish be? May you also design and create the world you want to live in. Priti, thank you so much uh, for the work you do in the world, for who you are in the world, uh, for what you see. You have this amazing gift to see patterns and to act upon them. And, and, and that ability to not just be a visionary in the traditional sense, but actually to see things and see the connections between people and ideas and opportunity is such a gift. And I am grateful to know you. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me today. To find out more about Echoing Green, go to echoinggreen.org. Don't miss any of our episodes. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating so other listeners can find us. I'm Eric Dawson. Stay on course. Stay on course.